Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome back to the Book of Lost Tales Part 1 class. This is our class number four, uh, in, <laughs> in which I tried desperately to get caught up on all the stuff I've gotten behind on. Um, uh, as you can see, uh, another week, uh, another location. I am uh, in a different hotel room now. I am back up at, in Dover, Delaware, the birthplace of the Mythgard Institute. Uh, for class this week, I'm visiting, uh, coming through here with my family. Um, so uh, I, I hope that uh, things will work out okay. I can't help but notice um, that uh, the internet connection is not very speedy here at the hotel. Um, so um, I will sort of rely upon those of you who are here live to let me know uh, if something is going bad, if uh, my picture's going out, or if you lose audio in particular. Um, I would. I do want to make sure that um, um, that you let me know. Okay, let me know right away. I've got my question box open here, so I can see all your your comments and questions right away. Um, yeah, make sure you give me some early warning so that I can try to um, uh, try to try to get things sorted. Um, and then as long as you guys can hear me, okay. I'm also trying to be a little bit quiet because my kids are sleeping in the next room, but I think we'll be all right here. Um, okay, very good. Um, let us then go on and I want to start with the depiction of the gods, as of course they're called uh, in this book. That is the depiction of the Valar. Um, and think about um, uh, think about the, uh, the 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 Valar, their actions, their natures, uh, and their descriptions as were given to them. I, I chose one. Well, I chose one of my favorite um, as a kind of an illustration, which I th but I think this really. Um, illustrates pretty well. One of the ways in which we're just in a different world here in the Book of Lost Tales than we were in the Silmarillion, and in ways which I think it's easy to lose sight of. The Book of Lost Tales are, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot here that's strange from the Silmarillion as we're used to it. And a lot of that strangeness is due to, of course, the change in Tolkien's ideas over time. And there are, of course, many things that we're going to be looking at tonight where we see a lot of the, the shifts in those ideas. But a lot of the change, um, and it's difficult, I think, really, um, to be able to tell how much of this, this sort of strangeness um, is because of shifting ideas and how much is because of simply the greater, the, 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 the increased amount that we get here. Uh, and. Uh, and Neil, you have absolutely guessed it. Neil has guessed it in one. I want to talk about the description of Tolkis. So let's do that. Okay. Um, all right. Otherwise was the mind of Tolkis, and he dwelt amidmost of Valmar. Most youthful is he, and strong of limb and lusty, and for that he is named Paldoria who loveth games, and twanging of bows, and boxing, wrestling, running, and leaping, and songs that go with a swing and a toss of a well-filled cup. Nonetheless, he is no, none, nonetheless is he no wrangler or striker of blows unprovoked, as is Makar. Albeit, there is none of the Valar or Uvanimor, who are monsters, giants, and ogres, that do not fear the sinews of his arm and the buffet of his iron-clad fist, when he has cause for wrath. His was a house of mirth and revelry, and it sprang high into the air with many stories, and had a tower of bronze and pillars of copper in the wide arcade. In its court men played and rivaled one another in doughty feats, and there at times were that fair maiden Nessa, 
wife of Tokas, bare goblets of the goodliest wine, and cooling drinks among the players. But most she loved to retire unto a place of fair lawns, whose turf Orome, her brother, had culled from the richest of all his forest glades, and Pelurian had planted it with spells that it was always green and smooth. There danced she among her maidens as long as Laurelin was in bloom, for is she not greater in the dance than Vanna herself? Okay. Um, I can't... Uh, I can't... So, I, I, I can't even express how <laughs> cool I think that Tolkis is. You know, when I read this over earlier, I always loved Tolkis. He's always, always been one of my favorite of the Valar. Uh, and then I read this and I'm like, wow, he's even cooler than I thought he was. Um, and again, you know, we get so much more about the Valar. I mean, this whole section, and here I'm going back to uh, uh, the chapter, I forget which number, chapter 3, I believe, when the Valar come to Valinor. Um, and we get the, the descriptions of each one of their homes and, 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 and much more about each one of them. Um, and, uh, and, and again, the, the, one of the points here that I, that I want to make is I, I want to take some time looking. Christopher Tolkien brought this up, brought up this phenomenon, that is the fact that the whole narrative style, the whole narrative approach about um, the, uh, uh, the Book of Lost Tales is fundamentally different from the Silmarillion, and it's easy for us to lose sight of that. Again, because it's so easy to focus on the, the sort of more glaring and significant differences of, of, uh, of, of sort of theme and approach. Um, uh, you know, again, all those ideas that have changed over time by the time we get to know them later on. But I think that this narrative shift is a huge, huge deal um, that we can see. Tolkien is here giving us more detail, not just because he's, you know, he's sort of cuts it down more later on, you know, that he just gets more brief over time, you know, gets more concise. Rather, the, again, it's, it's a completely different philosophy of narrative. It's a completely different approach. Um, the word that Christopher Tolkien uses of it is epitomizing. Um, if we go on to more of the history of Middle-earth uh, uh, sequence, we'll sort of see where this begins. He starts off in the Book of Lost Tales, not as sort of trying to condense all of these things in, in, in brief, but rather to expand them in a sense. As we've already talked about, he already had a bunch of these stories, a bunch of these characters sort of thought of and worked out. And the Book of Lost Tales is his first attempt to bring them all together and sort of unify them as a narrative. Um, especially with the with the sort of um, you know the, with the frame tail binding them together in the way that he does, um, but more than that, you know, what what I mean there is that in the book of Lost Tales, therefore, what we get is not uh, you know sort of a compression of these stories, but an expansion of them, right? Placing them in this different context, so we get not only these stories told in full, uh, but we also get the way that those stories, you know, we, we get this additional narrative of Ariel here or Alfwina in the other, in sort of the, the later conception of it, um, as Christopher Tolkien explained a little bit early on. Um, you know, so we, we get that, that sort of sub-story of Ariel and the, and the Cottage of Lost Play um, and everything that's going on there, and in fact that story was going to be sort of working into, sort of gonna, it was going to be a, you know, a, a part, um, the final chapter of the larger story. Um, so again, it's, there's no desire 
in that sense for compression. Uh, in fact, I even think of the way that Ariel himself in the early chapters is sort of resisting stopping stories, right? He, he wants to hear the full versions. You know, he, he, he never wants the stories to end, you know, and when it's time to stop telling stories for the night, he's always really disappointed, right? There, there's no impulse towards brevity in these early books. Later on, though, the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, is the sort of direct descendant of the really of the 1930 Quenta, and that was designed to be a compression. It's just a summary, um, you know, a, you know, divided up into parts. But it's just like you know, here is a is a, is is a quite brief prose survey of the overall history of the overall events. And now, as he went on to revise that and develop it. You know, Tolkien made the choice. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't want to do the frame tale with inset stories. The, the, you know, it's not just that he'd moved away from some of the ideas in the Book of Lost Tales. He'd fundamentally moved away from that entire narrative approach, right? And instead, he wanted to do the epitomizing, to use Christopher Tolkien's word, the epitomizing approach. Um, this sort of historical survey, be, uh, and my my the reason for that, it seems to me. Um, is because that fit more with the mode in which those stories were being handed down, thinking ahead towards the transmission of these stories. And, and we've talked about this at various points before. This is something that Tolkien was usually thinking about. That is, he normally was thinking not only just about constructing these stories themselves, but inventing the sort of process by which those stories were handed down to us within the fictional frame. So, of course, in The Lord of the Rings, we get the, you know, the, the business about Bilbo's authorship of The Hobbit and Frodo's authorship of most of The Lord of the Rings with Sam serving as editor. And then that, you know, that business about the note on Shire Records, right, in the foreword to The Fellowship of the Ring, in which we're told about the, West Book of, the Red Book of Westmarch and how it passed down to us and was annotated by the Gondorian scribes and the appendices added, right, all that kind of thing. Um, so when we think about, later on, the Silmarillion coming down to us and how we were going to get that material, he seems to have, on, on that basis, made the choice, no, I don't want something like the Book of Lost Tales, these extended tales set in a frame narrative. Um, what seems more plausible, now that those stories are part of the distant past, right, now that we are getting the Silmarillion material, at a greatly increased remove. Remember, there wasn't that sense of distance. There wasn't. There weren't three ages of the world, right? It was. It was the only age that there was, and that age. And we we'll come back to this in a little bit. That early age of you know again you know what we think of as the Silmarillion material, what we think of as the first age, right, of Middle Earth, isn't ancient, ancient, ancient history. In fact, it's much more contemporary. Its relationship to our history. Right, to the history of our world, um, it's much closer to our time than even the Lord of the Rings is supposed to be within the fictional framework that he put, that he places the, the Lord of the Rings itself in. Right, so so that there's, there's a much greater um, period of time the more he revises it. But back in these days, you know, this conception of the Book of Lost Tales is historically relatively close to the modern era. Um, um, so so again. The whole story, you know, the stories have that sense of immediacy, which he abandoned when he put them, when he put, first of all, the third age much further back in history, and the first age way, way, way back behind that, right? So now we're getting ancient, ancient lore, which has been sort of handed down and packaged 
you know, for, from one teller to another. And even where Bilbo is getting, or yeah, Bilbo is getting things pretty close to the source, right? Or again, much much closer than you, you might get from a human historian, right? He's able to uh, to appeal to the records living as well as written uh, there in Rivendell, and yet um, it's he's still getting it as a sort of a digested history, right? And so that epitomizing version, um, that 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 much more distant and brief survey of the events that we get in the Silmarillion, he 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 adopts that that. Is a completely different approach, uh, and so therefore, I think it's 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 interesting for us to notice some of these things. I think that this descri this description of Tolkas um, is a fascinating example because I don't think it is fundamentally different from what we get about Tolkas. Of the few things we learn about Tolkas in the Silmarillion, every single one of them seems to fit this description. So I don't see any reason to believe that there has been any significant change in Tolkien's thought, and yet. All these things that we might not have, that we might not have uh, had definitely concluded um, about him. You know, we wouldn't have had uh, sufficient evidence to be justified um, in, uh, in in sort of extrapolating so much about his personality. And yet, you know, again, we now get all these details. So again, so much of this stuff, and it's one of the things that's hard when we're when we're comparing the Silmarillion to the Book of Lost Tales is that we're not just dealing with that distance of time and the revision process that has gone in and the changes in Tolkien's you know decisions and his thought process but rather that shift in narrative which puts the whole thing on a different ground right so again um, the shift from uh, from Tolkien's early Tolkien's to later Tolkien's here I don't think is an actual revision but things do end up sounding and looking different when we get the epitomized version of them. Now we're going to go on and look at some things which are much more sort of manifestly um, uh, different, um, that is, actual revisions and changes. Um, but, uh, but again, I think, it's, I think it's really important to kind of keep this in mind. And, and, and I hope thinking about these things in this term helps us to kind of reorient ourselves in a way in thinking about how to appreciate the Book of Lost Tales uh, on its own to recall that it is a very different kind of narrative in this particular way um, but before we move on entirely um, I would love to hear more from some of you guys about what you think sort of what 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 you're thinking about the Valar basically in you know I've, I've sort of picked on Tolkien here as an illustration um, because I think that he illustrates this difference really uh, really clearly and because he's my favorite of the Valar um, but uh, but let's see I've got a couple really good observations here um, Sarah King says it seems to me that this is the perspective of a researcher who has to deal uh, who has had to deal with a lot of frustrating records of unknown authorship absolutely uh, Tolkien is is uh, very familiar with that process again you see his medievalist training coming through in stuff like the notes on Shire records um, and his focus on the uh, the sort of the provenance of different versions of stories and everything um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Kim Kimber says the extra detail in the Valar not only makes me feel their personalities more, but seems to bring more interaction among them. Um, sort of shared planning and decision making. I, I, Kimber, I, I agree with both of those points. I think that we do see more of their personalities, and as a result, they seem. I'm always tempted to say of the Book of Lost Tales that the Valar seem much more human, but I don't think that's fair. Um, that is. Not that they seem much more like men as opposed to elves, for instance, why the word human is a little bit misleading here, but they certainly are 
much more well-rounded personalities, right? We get to know them as people much more. Um, and therefore, the effect of their, of, of the effect on sort of the narrative of their doings is really profound, I think. The Valar seem extremely remote in the Silmarillion. Um, we get some things, you know, I, I think sort of the closest that we get um, to the Valar in, uh, um, in the Silmarillion is the occasional intemperate outburst by Tolkas. And, you know, in, in particular, the story of Ali and Yavanna, I think, is one of the places where we see more of the personality um, of the Valar, at least of those two there. But, um, but again, generally, that's not what we get. And I think that, you know, if I think about conversations I've had um, with, you know, with Tolkien readers about the Lord of the Rings and, uh, you know, the way in which the whole thing sort of seems so removed, so remote from, you know, these kinds of spiritual concerns, you know, from the, 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 the you know, the presence of the Valar being unperceived and um, people not really having any connection to them. Um, in part, I think that that's, that's, you know, even when people go to the Silmarillion and they see this stuff operating more, it, it still comes into effect, right? That kind of, that sense of remoteness is still present. Um, and again, I think in large part, it's because the Valar um, are very distant. They just, they seem like a collection of archetypes, which is appropriate in that kind of a mythological setting. Um, but it's fascinating to actually get to see them and to see, in a sense, their flaws as well. They are rounded characters in the sense of often doing dumb things, <laughs> and uh, they are. We are much more aware of the fact that they are limited, um, and that they are making choices, and their choices are not always great ones. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Roy asking, uh, is, oh, do I think that this illustrates sort of the shift better than Nienna? Yes, because Nienna. Uh, I'm going to, uh, you, are, you are anticipating me, uh, I'm going to go there. Because, of course, it's Nienna, it's the, 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 the depiction of, of, of Nienna, or rather we should really say the character who will later on become Nienna, um, uh, who illustrates, I think, the other side of the thing. Again, there are those two factors involved in the differences between the Book of Austales and the Silmarillion. The one is the shift in the narrative approach, and the other is simple revision right, and change of mind. And Nienna really illustrates that second one much more than the first one. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely why. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, Yana speaks of, uh, uh, you know, being a lot closer to the Valar, and I agree, it does really change our own sense of, of, of investment in their story. Um, and in that way, I think, really changes our whole framework of approaching um, the story of the elves, Right, and the story of the elves and men that we're going to get later on, you know, I it will be interesting to return to this next week when we look at the Noldor and the rebellion of the Noldor, because I think that it's one of the consequences um, of kind of getting closer to the Valar is that we have a, a quite different perspective, I think, uh, on the story of the rebellion of the Noldor. So we'll definitely come back to that. Um, okay, good. Let's see. Lots of excellent comments here. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Good, good. 
Um, yeah, Arthur points out uh, is as another uh, sort of um, good example of this um, the difference in sort of them being more sort of human appearing in their limitations being more more evident. Um, Arthur says, "Who would picture Melko, mightiest of the Valar, building ice towers for his employers and swindling them?" Right? <laughs> you know but that that he would go through that. I mean, you think of the way in which we get the descent of Melkor, uh, you know, onto Arda. Um, in the Silmarillion, and his, you know, his descent in wrath and power. He does sort of sneak in at one point, right? But, uh, you know, again, we just have this sort of, we're left with this sense of enormous elemental conflict uh, between the Valar and Melkor, and this idea of them just sort of interacting and deceiving one another, and, um, or attempting to deceive one another uh, on both sides, really puts them on a different, uh, a different, um, a different plane, I think. Um, yeah, Tom, I think it's a really good observation. Tom Hillman says, the Valar of the published Silmarillion seem portrayed with much more respect and awe, as you would expect them to have been viewed by the elves who had seen them. Um, this, uh, they also suit the more remote and grim feel of the published Silmarillion. I think both of those are, are, are important points, Tom. You're right. Again, it fits. Um, we wouldn't expect this kind of you know, sort of up close, personal, and, and in its way more honest um, depiction of the Valar. You wouldn't expect that story to be retold by any of the elves in that way, right? Because of the respect we know that they have for the Valar. Um, not that that means that in the published Silmarillion we're simply getting the edited down version, right? Where they're, uh, you know, sort of, it's, it's like the expurgated version edited by the elves. No, but 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 Tom, I think the way that you said it was was uh, was exactly right. Um, the whole depiction of them is founded upon the respect and the awe that the elves in, that the elves obviously do feel for them. Um, and the, I, I would reframe the second part of your comment just a little bit, Tom, to say that that actually seems to me one of the primary things that leads to the greater remoteness um, and possibly, in a sense, grimness uh, of the view of the published Silmarillion. Um, yeah, Bill wants me to talk about the laughter of Tolkis. Um, oh, I could, Bill. Uh, it's one of my favorite aspects of Tolkis's character. Um, and one of the things that I think is, um, makes me enjoy Tolkis even more in the Book of Lost Tales is not just that the extra details that we get of him here make him sound even more fun than he was before, but the way that we get the, the contrast between him and Makar, the Valar who disappears later on, gets edited out uh, of Pantheon, um, who seems to be, you know, more of just the god of war uh, and battle, who seems to be not, um, you know, to, to be much more evil. Um, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a much more elemental god of fighting and killing, and there's no place for him in, in Valinor. Um, Melkor gets all of that um, in the later version. Um, because he's this, you know, he's not a gray character sort of between black and white in one sense. I mean, morally speaking, he's quite black, but he lives with the rest of the Valar there in, there in Valinor. And it's uncomfortable, him being there, him and his sister being there and not really fitting in. So he ends up getting, uh, getting edited out. But again, as a contrast to Tolkis, it really emphasizes uh, Tolkis's character uh, and Tolkien's difference and his laughter is one of 
violence and killing are a very serious thing to Makar, right? As they would, as they are, and will be to Melkor. Um, not, uh, not so Tolkien's, right? For whom uh, uh, fighting is uh, is more of a game. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay. Um, Bill says, is the laughter at all linked to the singing of the Rohirrim during combat? Partially, yes. Um, not entirely, I think. That is, part of the singing um, is... I don't think... There's a kind of innocence to Tolkas, right? Um, he does not enjoy killing people as killing people. It's not fighting. It's about the... It's not fighting that he enjoys. It is the game of it. It's the competition of it. He loves this kind of exertion. Um, he loves this kind of contest among people. Um, and he is always very happy to settle things. I love... One of my favorite Tolkien's moments in the Book of Lost Tales is at the trial of Melkor, right? Where Tolkien won't even stay at the trial of Melkor. He's like, first of all, he's obviously guilty. What on earth is the point of having this trial? We all know he's guilty. Let's just get to the sentencing already. But then he says, but anyway, even if... Okay, fine, you want to have a trial? Let's do a trial. Let him loose, and I'll fight him, <laughs> right? And then we'll see, we'll see what happens. He's perfectly willing... Uh, to you know, to to fight Melkor again in a fair fight uh, and see what happens, um, but he has no patience uh, for the the debate, right? That that's going to go on about what they should do and whether or not he's guilty or to what extent he's guilty. Um, there's a kind of purity, I think, uh, in Tolkien's character, which I find really endearing, um, and I think that the laughter of the Rohirrim is not 100% pure in that way. I'm thinking, of course, of Faramir's speech about um, not loving the sword for its sharpness or the arrow for its swiftness or the warrior for its strength, right? Uh, and But the, how he sort of suggests that the Rohirrim, um, though he values them and admires them, they have, their culture has sort of shifted into the loving battle and war for as a as a as as an end in themselves right um so i think that some of this we get a little bit of that taint taint according to faramir um uh which seems to color some of the attitude of the rohirrim towards war um which i think makes them imperfectly tolkis like um but nevertheless bill i would say that there is a connection there um, anyway, okay, I need to, uh, remember today's the night I'm going to get caught up, right, so, uh, I'm still on slide one, I should, I, we should, uh, we should, we should carry on, because I want to get to some of the other things about the Valar, and, of course, Roy, I do want to get back to Nienna, because it's Nienna's character who is of the character of the Valar, she's the one who is, uh, in my opinion, sort of most mind-blowing, uh, from a Silmarillion point of view. Um, but before we do that, I want to look at sort of one of the action scenes. This is from the chaining of Melko. And, you know, that whole scene of the, um, the way in which the, the Valar decide they're going to deceive Melko, right? They're going to, uh, they have to sneak up on him and, and they're going to they're gonna try to trick him into letting his guard down. Um, you know, part of that is really sort of appealing because they're not just overthrowing Melko, they're making a fool out of him. 
right? And the way that they sort of sucker him in through his own pride and arrogance seems kind of fitting. Um, but talk about less sort of, uh, um, you know, Tom, I'm thinking of your terms, less sort of awful and remote, right? Awful in the old sense, being full of awe. Um, certainly the kind of low cunning and wiliness of the, of the Valar in that moment in the Book of Lost Tales is very different from what we get. But, um, but I thought this was, a, this was an interesting moment. He's wanting Tolkis to come, Melko, that is, is wanting Tolkis to come before him in his throne because uh, he, uh, he's holding a grudge. Now he purposed to spurn Tolkis in the mouth in payment of that buffet long ago, but the Valar had foreseen something of this and did but make play of humiliation that Melko might thereby be lured from his stronghold of Utumna. In sooth, Manway hoped even to end... Sorry, coming again. In sooth, Manway hoped even to the end for peace and amity, and the gods would at his bidding indeed have received Melko into Valinor under truce and pledges of friendship, had not his pride been insatiate and his obstinacy in evil unconquerable. Now, however, was scant mercy left for him within their hearts, seeing that he abode in his demand that Manwe should do homage, and Tolkis bend to those ruthless feet. Nonetheless, the Lord of Gods and Elves approaches now the chair of Melko and makes to kneel, for such was their plan, the more to ensnare that evil one. But lo, so fiercely did wrath blaze up in the hearts of Tolkas and Aule at that sight, that Tolkas leapt across the hall at a bound, despite Engaino, and Aule was behind him, and Orome followed his father, and the hall was full of tumult. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of things we see here. Again, we can see how much more personable, more people-like, you know, they, uh, uh, they are the... the they're, they're, they're much more full personalities here. Um, we see it in Melko, right? Again, he is not just this sort of remote, not respected, but awful still, right? This remote figure of this insatiable desire for power. He does have the insatiable, right? His pride is still insatiate, and his obstinacy in evil is unconquerable. I love that phrase. However, um, uh, he's also petty, Right, you know, he he also holds this personal spite against Tolkas. Really, what uh, what what does him in is not just you know his obstinacy in evil uh, in in some kind of vague sense, but his the fact that he's holding um, this very spiteful grudge against Tolkas and and is harboring this kind of petty uh, 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 this 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 petty retribution. Um, that he wants to, he's really looking forward to kicking Tolkien in the face and has been looking forward to that for a long time. So now, given the opportunity, when Tolkien is safely chained, that he feels that he can freely kick him in the face, um, he's looking forward to doing that. And it's that, more than anything else, that, uh, that, that, that is his undoing here. And again, that puts us in a completely different world. We relate to Melko as well as the other uh, Valar in a very different way. And we see Tolkien breaks faith. Right, and he's he 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 doesn't do he doesn't follow through on his part of the plan. Right, Tolkas leaps in and wrecks the plan because he can't he just can't uh, he just can't uh, bear it. Arthur says, "You know, the Valar are lying. Yeah, they're lying. They're absolutely attempting to deceive uh, uh, Melko. And the only the only issue in the narrative with that, nobody is like." Oh, but is it right for us to do this? Right, no one even asks that question. The only question is really. Can we succeed, right? I mean, Melko's really wily, right? I mean, he's the one who's deceived us before. 
um, can we can we one up him in deception? They're not sure that they can, right? Um, but yeah, as far as any any sense of moral condemna condemnation on that, the narrative doesn't give it to us. We are in that way um, in a different world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice though. Notice another, you know, a detail that we get here, which is which is consistent, which should, in that, in you know, in this moment, remind us of the Silmarillion as well. Notice Manway's mercy, right? Um, you will recall that from the Silmarillion, and uh, Manway's almost. Tolkien doesn't use the word naive, but that's the sense that we get, right, uh, in the published Silmarillion, that Manway is. Um, you know, Tolkien doesn't forget, right? Uh, and he has not, uh, he does not believe uh, Melkor's claims to be reformed, right? Manway is willing to believe it, um, and he's willing to take him in. And even here, Manway hoped for peace and amity to the end. He's hoping that they can still be friends. That's what amity means, right? Hoping they can still be friends with Melkor, that they can just patch this over, right? Just promises that he'll be good and be friendly, then they'll let him come back to Valinor, right? That Manway would propose that, and the rest of the Valar, most of the rest of them, would agree, right? Um, so there is a kind of naivete, it seems, it's, uh, which, which sticks with Manway all the way through. Um, and he is, you know, so DMA says he's forgiving. Yes, he's forgiving, but it's more, this is more than forgiveness, right? This is not just... I accept you and still love you despite the evil that you've done. Um, there's a there's a, a a willingness to believe good despite evidence that we see in Manway here, and which which again which sticks um, with Manway. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you're right, Arthur, that the element that we get in the published Silmarillion, um, you know, he could not see that all love had left Melkor forever, um, that that element is not here. It's ex That's explicit in the Silmarillion. Um, and again, we're, we're, he's getting towards that here with the, you know, that marvelous phrases of his insatiate pride and his unconquerable obstinacy in evil. Um, he doesn't say explicitly as he does in the published Silmarillion, that Manway just doesn't get that, that he can't perceive that, um, that he does not see that Melkor has been, has, through his own choices, totally corrupted himself and can't go back. Um, that will become more explicit later on, but it does, the same notion seems to me implied, seems to me suggested. Um, Kimber, you're right. Kimber asks an excellent question. Isn't it interesting that the narrators, the elf narrators of these tales, uh, feel they have this level of detail about the Valar and their doings. Who told them these stories? How much was relayed and how much is elven embellishment of sparser stories? Well, Kimber, as far as where they could have gotten it, there's no reason that they couldn't have gotten it at, say, secondhand at least from the Valar themselves. Um, the uh, the connection between the Valar, I mean, these are elves who live there. Remember, Meryl Eterinki, who is telling the story of the chaining of Melko, is the is is in the direct line from Inwe, um, who was there, you know, so she could easily have gotten these stories secondhand, um, uh, you know, through only one teller from the Valar themselves. So it's 
Kimber, I don't think the question, or the question to me anyway, isn't primarily how could they have known it, but rather, Tom, thinking back to your comment before, why would they tell it this way, right? Um, because, of course, the implication, since we do have these frame tales, it's not just that the quality of these stories is different because we're getting them through the awe and reverence of the elves who tell them. Um, that is, they, the point is not just we get a different set of Valar, or, you know, a different seeming set of Valar here than we get in the later stories, but rather, by implication, we get a different set of elves as well, right? If these elves are, you know, feel free to tell these stories in these ways, right, um, rather than in the much more um, deferential uh, and respectful way in which similar stories are told uh, later on, um, it does suggest something different about the nature of the elves um, and or something different about the, their relationship with the Valar. Um, so, um, so I think that that's, that's interesting, and that seems to me actually to fit from what we see. Think about the fact that um, Lindo and Byre are running the College of Lost Place, so they've got all these children, right, to whom they're still telling stories. Think about the, the, that, that, that rambling and funny little monologue we got from Rumil when, um, when Ariel first meets him in the garden. I mean, it's going on and on about languages, remember? Um, the whole tone and spirit there, I mean, they compare Rumel and the way that he talks with Galadriel and how she talks in The Fellowship of the Ring, right? It's different, right? Rumel, you know, he's, he's very old, right? And he's experienced a lot, and he's been through some hard times. He's escaped the dungeons of Melko, he mentions, right? You know, so it's not like, uh, you know, life's been, been short and easy for Rumel. But I could totally see Rumel, the Rumel character that we meet there in the music of the Ainur chapter. I could absolutely picture that guy up in a tree singing Tralalalali uh, in The Hobbit, right? Um, that kind of spirit of the elves seems to be much more uh, closely associated. We seem to be closer to that world, um, to those elves here, than we are to the elves as we will meet them in The Lord of the Rings um, and as we will get to know them better in The Silmarillion. Um, and I so so Kimber, I think that's a really important thing uh, to remind us of and to keep in uh, for us to keep in mind. Um, good. I, and Roy had just said exactly that same thing as I was talking um, that these elves remind him more of the Rivendell elves in the published Hobbit. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, um, and Roy adds, it's uh, you know this world is really an entirely different secondary world than the later one. Yes, in a sense, in a sense, I do agree with that. Um, you know, not entirely. I mean, the, the connections between them are obviously so great, and Christopher Tolkien is right to point out that there's really quite an extraordinary number of, of characters and scenes and even lines and speeches which are still clearly recognizable um, in this text, which was written in Tolkien's early 20s, you know, uh, 50, 60 years before, uh, you know, the final revisions to the Silmarillion before his death. You know, so he's right to point out that the similarity there is, is great. But, Roy, I think that that's a perfectly fair way to think about it, and that in some ways it might be better for us to be thinking uh, not in terms of, you know, these being the same, but to sort of think of them in that sense of being, you know, this is, this is one mythology, right? This is one um, secondary world. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna recycle the elements of this secondary world in building his new secondary world later on. Um, 
in one sense, it's just a different way of saying the same thing, you know, that he revised it. Um, but in some ways, Roy, I do think that that's a, a useful way of thinking about it. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> Arthur Harrow says, A, the Valar lie. B, these stories come from the Valar to the elves, to us. Discuss. <laughs> I'm not going to do that right now, Arthur, but that's a really great uh, question. Um, thinking about the source of these tales, again, since we have that frame narrative, which draws so much more of our attention, right, to the source, you know, to the, to the provenance of these stories, and we get these, this character of the, of the Valar, I think you could be doing a lot more thinking here. Um, there's much more to be done. Um, hey, Arthur, I've got an idea. Why don't you post on the discussion forum on that subject, and you guys can uh, start a discussion there on that subject. That's a great idea. Why don't you go post that? Go do that right now. Okay, no, wait till after class, then go do that. Um, <laughs> he's already done it. Very good, Arthur. Excellent. Very good. Um, let's talk about Nienna, though. Um, because Nienna, of course, I, I, I absolutely, every day of the week, if you had asked me, um, you know, at any point in the last 20 years, who, was my, who are my favorite Valar, I would have said Tolkas and Nienna. Those have always been my favorite two of the Valar. Uh, Tolkas in the Book of Lost Tales is like twice as delightful as he is in the Silmarillion. And then you get to Nienna, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> right? We're in a completely different world. In fact, we have a completely different character. She is not Nienna. Nienna, she is Fui. To Vey, Fui came not much, for she labored rather at the distilling of salt humors whereof are tears, and black clouds she wove, and floated up that they were caught in the winds, and went about the world, and their lightless webs settled ever and anon upon those that dwelt therein. Now these tissues were despairs, and hopeless mourning, sorrows, and blind grief. The hall that she loved best was one yet wider and more dark than they, and she too named it with her own name, calling it Fui. Therein, before her black chair, burnt a brazier with a single flickering coal, and the roof was of bat's wings, and the pillars that upheld it and the walls about were made of basalt. Thither came the sons of men to hear their doom, and thither are they brought by all the multitude of ills that Melko's evil music set within the world. Slaughters and fires, hungers and mishaps, diseases and blows dealt in the dark, cruelty and bitter cold and anguish and their own folly bring them here, and Fui reads their hearts. Some then she keeps in Mandos beneath the mountains, and some she drives forth beyond the hills, and Melko seizes them and bears them to Angamandi, or the hells of iron, where they have evil days. Some too, and these are the many, she sends aboard the black ship Mornier, who lieth ever and anon in a dark harbor of the north, awaiting those times when the sad pomp winds to the beach, down slow, rugged paths from Mandos. Totally different world. <laughs> Brian thinks that Fui is terrifying. She is terrifying, right? Um, she is the judge of souls, um, and she is the source we see her associated with tears. This is the only thing she seems to have in common with Nienna, right? She's still associated with tears, but not because she weeps for the sorrows of Middle-earth, rather because she is the source of tears. We see her laboring to distill the salt humor whereof our tears. Uh, she is the wellspring of people's tears, not in the sense, again, of, uh, of, of weeping herself, but rather... Uh, she's the one who is the source of all weeping and provides the tears to all those who, who weep, just as she is the source of despairs and hopeless mourning 
sorrows and blind grief. She sends those out in these dark and shadowy tissues that she weaves, these webs that she makes that settle upon those that dwell in the world. She is the source of all of these terrible uh, thoughts and ideas. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tom says she's the patron saint of the House of Hurin. Uh, yeah, in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, you know, what we see here, I mean, to, to sort of put it crudely, in this initial version of the story, of, of the mythology, Tolkien gives us a more traditional god and goddess of the underworld, right? I mean, Fui, she's the queen of the dead, right? She's the queen of the damned. Um, she is the judge of soul. The, the dead come to her. She's the source of suffering and grief. Um, she's in this way much more traditional. Nyanna Nyanna's odd, mythologically speaking, right? Um, whenever, uh, I always have fun when we get to Nyanna, especially, you know, I've mentioned this before, you know, whenever I teach uh, talking to undergrads, they always want to do the equivalents. Okay, Manda, uh, Manway equals, uh, you know, Zeus, and, 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 and Omo equals Poseidon. Okay, okay. And we get to Nyanna, and I'm like, and? <laughs> okay, <laughs> who is Nyanna? She has no, she's no direct analog, uh, uh, you know, no exact analog um, in, in, in any mythology. Um, Fui does, though, right? Um, she is in that way a great deal more, um, more traditional. Um, what else do we see here? I want to sort of hurry, um, uh, hurry, I, I want to make sure to move along here a little bit. Um, Save so a lot. I, I, I want to get to the judgment uh, that Fui is making to the to the fates uh, of the children of Iluvatar. Um, so we'll, we'll so we can kind of keep Fui in mind. Um, but again, I think one of the things you know, if um, if from the Tolkien's description, one of the the sort of take home messages for us is to remember the consequences of this narrative shift, right? To remember, to be reminded we're in a different narrative world, we're just reading a different kind of story. So here with Fui, the, the, the moral of the story, the, the sort of the takeaway here is, um, you know, Roy, kind of like you were saying, this is a different conception, right? And if we, keep, if we continue to think, those characters that do have the same names and many of the same characteristics, um, we think we know them. Right, we think we know Manwe and Varda and Aule and Ulmo, but they're not the same. Right, the conceptions of many of these are really quite different. Even though there are many similarities, we can't just identify them, even though they are so similar. And a character like Fui reminds us we're not in the same place. Right, um, and I think you know, we get characters like Mandos. Mandos is different. Right? Many things are similar, but he's quite different. Orome, different, right? Especially in the way in which Orome is made the son of Aule and Yavanna, right? That's a huge change. Um, so, but so it's not just a question of like, Orome is going to get revised. Yeah, yeah, Orome is going to be revised. But I think that, you know, Roy's suggestion here for me uh, comes in uh, uh, to be much more sort of powerfully relevant. It's not just a question of, you know, he's going to tweak some things, but rather Orome is part of a different world, right? This is really is a different sub-creation. Um, we're not in the same place. We're not really talking to the same people. The people in this world 
many of them are going to look very similar to the ones in the other world, right? And many of them will still bear the same names. Um, but we have to be careful about just uh, thinking we're seeing a kind of uh, continuity there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Thomas says, uh, Fui as a death goddess being associated with despair and sorrow is hardly in line with Tolkien's idea of death as, a as the gift of Iluvatar. You're right. Well, let's look at that. Thanks for the transitional uh, prod there, uh, Thomas. Well, let's, uh, let's go on and, and see. But first, the nature of the children of, of, of Iluvatar. So, okay. This is what we're told about the children. Now Eldar and men were of Iluvatar's devising only, nor, for they comprehended not fully, when, when Iluvatar first propounded their being, did any of the Ainur dare in their music to add anything to their fashion. And these races are for that reason named rightly the children of Iluvatar. This may be as the cause wherefore many others of the Ainur, beside Melko, have ever been for meddling with both elves and men, be it of good or evil intent. Yet seeing that Iluvatar made the Eldar most like in nature, if not in power and stature to the Ainur, while to men he gave strange gifts, their dealings have been chiefly with the elves. Okay, so let's review what we're learning here about the children of Iluvatar, right? Um, first, recall the delegation process, right, in the music of the Ainur, um, and the way in which that's emphasized in the Book of Lost Hills version, right, that we have these, even back then, even in the music, much more sort of personable um, Ainur. Remember, for instance, um, in the depiction of the, uh, of the music, they're playing instruments, right? Um, uh, in the published Silmarillion, their music is like unto the music of harps and viols and all those other things, right? Whereas here we have much more anthropomorphic um, Ainur playing on instruments, right? When they're, when they're doing the music. So even there we see them much more personable, much more anthropomorphic, as I said. Um, but anyway, nevertheless, the, that main theme there was delegation, right? That he was going to let them, we see that the much stronger ways in which uh, the Book of the Lost Tales version of the music of the Ainur um, depicted Iluvatar delegating to them the authority to, to, to improvise, to do their own thing, to, to really show that, um, you know, to, 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 or to adorn things with their own thought. So we have emphasized here, they didn't do that with the children. The children come entirely from Iluvatar. And remember, Iluvatar um, produced the music of those extra themes that came in later on in the music himself, right? That's explicitly stated uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, Music of the Ainur. Um, that seems to suggest, I can't even explicitly say uh, that, um, that they are, uh, that the children of Iluvatar come out of those later themes, but it certainly does seem to be uh, uh, implied, I think, pretty clearly. Um, uh, Andrew McLaughlin is uh, thinking about the significance of the word meddling uh, and is being reminded, of course, of the number of times that Gandalf is being accused of meddling uh, in people's affairs. Um, uh, and it is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, he sent, he, Gandalf, is sent, the Astari are sent uh, to meddle in Middle-earth, right, to meddle with the affairs of men and elves. Um, that's kind of his job, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah, so I guess, Andrew, something's never changed uh, with regard to that. Um, but notice that that's the meddling that, that he talks about here is a consequence of the separation because the children of the Lunatar do not, were not produced, were not a product of the sub-creative efforts of the Ainur in the music because they sprang entirely from the mind of Iluvatar and are therefore more alien to the Valar than anything else, right? They're not kin unto them like they are to the other Valar. They're not of the same, um, of the same substance, of the same order um, as the other Ainur are, um, nor are they like the elements of the world, the product of the thought of the Valar. They are in this unique position of their own. And therefore, well, what are we told? Therefore, therefore they want a medal, right? Therefore, they are attracted to them. Um, therefore, they, whether they have good or evil intent, the Valar are fixated on the children of the Luvatar. Um, and that, I think, is really interesting. And we'll come back to that in a little bit, where uh, when we see the birth of the elves, um, we'll return to this connection between the Valar and the children of the Lugatar. In the meantime, let's talk more about strange gifts. Okay. Behold, I love the world. This is a Lugatar speaking, of course. And it is a hall of play for Eldar and men who are my beloved. But when the Eldar come, they will be the fairest and most lovely of all things by far, and deeper in the knowledge of beauty, and happier than men. But to men I will give a new gift, and a greater Therefore, he devised that men should have a free virtue, whereby, within the limits of the powers and substances and chances of the world, they might fashion and design their life beyond even the original music of the Ainur, that is as fate to all things else. This he did, that of their operations everything should in shape and deed be completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. Lo, even we Eldar have found to our sorrow that men have a strange power for good or ill, and for turning things, despite gods and fairies, to their mood in the world, so that we say, fate may not conquer the children of men, but yet are they strangely blind, whereas their joy should be great. All right. Um, several things here. One point that I don't want to lose in, before we go on to talk about the 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 free will thing that, that this passage primarily dwells in. Um, I don't want to lose that first line. I love the world, says Iluvatar, and it is a hall of play for Eldar and men who are my beloved. Um, the world is a hall of play seems to me to be a pretty fundamental principle that we see in the Book of Lost Tales. Remember the, uh, the, the cottage of play, right? Before it was lost, right? The cottage of the children. Remember the cottage of lost play, right? And the whole atmosphere of the, co the cottage of lost play. Um, the way in which this world is wrapped up with play, with a childlike kind of joy, is uh, a motif which comes up a lot, right? So I want to make sure we sort of notice that in passing as we go. Um, the Eldar, in sort of a little corollary to that noticing, the Eldar are happier, right? They're most lovely of all things. They are deeper in the knowledge of beauty. So they're, they're, they're most lovely. They sort of understand and appreciate beauty more, and they're happier than men. Um, is this because they're, you know, is this, be, 
this is sort of more they know more about this they're more in tune with it they're more what they're more playful right um this again i'm remembering the trollola the trollola lolly elves in the hobbit right um that seems again to be the kind of world um that we're that we're sort of in here um but but let's uh let's move on to the to the main thing here okay the new gift that he gives to men. Notice we've not said uh, we've not said a thing yet about death, right? We're going to get to that in a minute, um, but not yet as it said a single thing about death. The primary gift of a Lugatar to men is this free virtue, whereby they might fashion and design their life beyond even the original music of the Ainur that is as fate to all things else. Now, you will probably remember from the Silmarillion um, the, the you know, passages which are based on this, right? Um, uh, where, uh, where we get uh, the, the sort of the direct descendant of this passage still remaining in the published Silmarillion. Um, I think that the differences in phrasing here are interesting, as is usually the case uh, in comparing the Book of Lost Tales with the Silmarillion. We get more explanation here, and um, it seems to me to make the in, uh, his intention here a little bit clearer. Whether or not it's the same intention that he has later on, I'm not sure. But anyway, it seems a little bit clearer. <laughs> Andrew McLaughlin is asking me if I'm going to start talking about Boethius again. How will you know me, Andrew? No, 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 not going to go there. I can't promise to make no references whatsoever, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on Boethius here. Um, instead, what I want to emphasize, one question which comes up all the time when people read that passage in the public, the, this, the analog to this in the published Silmarillion, um, when it talks about the you know men having this gift of of free will and the ability to determine their fates, people ask the very natural follow-up question. Well, what does that suggest about the elves, right? Does that mean elves don't have free will? And there have been some who have concluded that. Um, I, one of the foremost of these is Roland Flicker, who, if you ask her, tell you yes, yes, um, the elves don't have free will. Um, the music of the Ainur is as fate to them, and they can't change it. That is what is plainly implied in that passage. And what she argues is that uh, anybody who says differently um, is basically just, you know, resisting the conclusion. They don't like that idea. And so they don't want to agree that, um, uh, that uh, they, you know, that, that, that elves don't have free will, and so they're, they're, they're resistant. But... There's no basis in the text for their resistance. Now, uh, I've never fully agreed with Dr. Flieger on this point, but I th and I think that looking at this passage, um, but anyway, setting that aside for a minute, and that is setting our conclusions about the Silmarillion passage aside, and looking at this passage a little bit more. Let's kind of unpack the sentence a little bit. He devised that men should have a free virtue. Now, let's, let's pause there. Virtue. Um, this the he's clearly using the word virtue in its old sense, the old Latinate sense of virtue, um, not the later sense of you know, virtue being the opposite of vice, right? Like a like a um, you know 
virtue as moral action or something like that. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about men being virtuous. To have a virtue means to have a power. Um, remember that um, in the Return of the King, when they're talking, when they're in the houses of healing and they're talking about herbs, uh, they use the word virtue in this way, in this old sense. Like I, I did not know that it had any virtue, right? Meaning I didn't know it had the power to do anything. Um, uh, virtue meant power, essentially. That is, ability to accomplish something. Um, so they should have a free virtue. They should have, they're going to be given power. What is the power exactly that men are given? They are given the power to fashion and design their life beyond even the original music of the Ainur. The implication here especially in the context of the music of the Ainur, which is the context in which this is given. The way, I would, the way I would sort of paraphrase this, or the way I would contextualize this, men are being made, uh, by Iluvatar, men are being made into um, collaborators in the same way, or at least in a similar way, to how the Valar were being made collaborators with Iluvatar in the first place. Iluvatar says to the Valar, Adorn this theme, right? Here's the theme. Here's the music that I want you to play. But I'm leaving most of it up to you, right? You know, I'll give you the chord progression. You guys improvise. Um, um, men, not elves, but men, seem to be given that same sub-creative role. This, I think, it's... Uh, I suspect in here, Andrew, this is why I'm not going to talk about Boethius... At the end of the day, I think the free will, predestination, or fate question is a subordinate question. I think that's not what the main what this passage is primarily about, and that's where I think that this passage, the Book of Lost Tales passage, um, makes this much more clear than the later version. Um, and that is what this is primarily about is the fact that men are made to be subcreators, that men are also made. Um, human beings are designed to be sub-creators. You think about, of course, if you're familiar with Tolkien's other writings, if you've read on fairy stories, for instance, you know, uh, uh, humans being made in the image of a maker, um, we know that the sub-creative impulse in humanity is something that Tolkien believed in very strongly. That's what I think we are seeing coming out here. Um, that in a different way from elves, Elves have one role, right? They are fairest, most lovely, deeper in the knowledge of beauty. They seem to be more at home in the hall of play um, that Iluvatar has made. Their relationship with that world is different, right? But they are not intrinsically, as a race or as a species, they are not intrinsically sub-creative in their focus. We see elves creating art a lot. Um, but here he points to men as the ones. They are the ones who are going to be primarily telling, making the story of history through their choices, through their actions. They are going to be elaborating on the themes. Like the Valar did. Remember, the Einar didn't do a great job with that. Right? Some of them did it well and some of them did it badly. The same is going to be true of humans. Right? Um, uh, Andrew says, could men do things that surprise Iluvatar? No, 
course not. No more than no core could, right? Um, Iluvatar makes that clear. But they'll be free to do things, right? Um, they'll be free to uh, adorn the theme with their own intentions if they do that with with uh, for ill instead of for good, right? Um, then they will end up serving just as Iluvatar's instrument in making things more wonderful than they knew of. But nevertheless, they will be free to make choices, and their choices will have real consequences. Um, so he does assert free will for humans in this way. But again, I think the important thing is the role that they're going to have with history, the role that it, with the unfolding of the history of the world, the elves' relationship with the world and its history is just different. And he doesn't define it. I, it might seem a cop-out to say, well, Tolkien doesn't explicitly say that elves don't have free will, and so therefore I feel free to conclude that they do in some sense. Notice he doesn't even talk about that, right? He doesn't say humans have this free virtue, and I'm, which I am denying to the elves, but rather the elves, the elves do one thing, right? He describes what they do in this one way. Um, they will be the fairest and the most lovely. They will have de they will be deeper in the knowledge of beauty and happier, right? Um, but on the other hand. I'm going to give this strange gift to humans. Um, and again, I don't see that as a, these are going to be one direction and these are going to be the other direction, um, you know, up and down on the same question. But rather, they have a different role to play. And the role of the men involves them having more of an input on what's going to happen uh, in the world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian says, perhaps saying that the music of the Ainur is as fate to all else isn't as inescapable as it first appears. Maybe the music itself also has gaps like the original theme did, and elves may choose to fill in many of those gaps as well. Possibly, yes. But I want to be careful. This doesn't say that, right? Um, filling in gaps like the Einor did is to use your own will subcreatively, right? In the way that the Einor did. It doesn't say that the elves did that. In fact, it's by singling out the men and with them being given this virtue, it suggests that the elves don't do that exact same thing. So what is their connection with the music? I'm hesitant here because I'm going out on a limb a bit. But what it sounds to me like is the humans, like the Ainur, are improving. The elves are not improving. They're singing along with the music, though. They're part of the music um, because of the way in which they're in tune with the earth itself, which is a product of the music. Um, but it's like the elves singing along with the Ainur. They're not improvising, right? They don't get a solo, right? They are the choir. Do they change the music in, in one sense? You know, is the music enriched by their 
presence, by their participation? Yes. Yes. Do they do things which make the music better than it would have been? Yes. But they're not doing that particular thing. They're not even profiting. Um, but you can contribute to music in other ways. Um, uh, anyway, that's, uh, um, that's where I'm going. Tom says, uh, uh, no improvising for the elves would really burn Feanor. We'll come to this. We'll come back to this a little bit when we look at the rebellion of the Noldor. It is exactly the choices of Feanor in particular and of others, um, especially his sons, which really lead me to question um, the elves don't have free will doctrine. But anyway. Um, let's um, go on to the next bit here. Let's talk about death in, in this context. It is, however, one with this gift of power that the children of men dwell only a short time in the world alive, yet do not perish utterly forever, whereas the Eldar dwells, dwell till the great end, unless they be slain or waste in grief, for to both of these deaths are they subject, nor doth elves subdue their strength, except it may be in ten thousand centuries, and dying they are reborn in their children, so that their number minishes not, nor grows. Yet while the sons of men will, after the passing of things, of a certainty join in the second music of the Ainur, what Iluvatar has devised for the Eldar beyond the world's end, he has not revealed, even to the Valar, and Milko has not discovered it. Now, um, notice the context of death here is not necessarily in the sense that um, the, the, the sense that is given to this is not as it is later on in later versions of this. He does not primarily emphasize death is a gift that's given to men because their home is elsewhere, right? That they, this is not their country. They are pilgrims passing through to their final destination. Um, notice how that language at the end of this passage, um, he has not revealed even to the Valar and Melko has not discovered it, right? That language is in the published Silmarillion, but if you remember, that language is attached not to the fate of the Eldar beyond the world's end, but to the final destination of the souls of men. Whither do men go when they depart from this world? We don't know, right? And Melko hasn't discovered it. But um, instead, that mysterious thing which Melko has not discovered is what's going to happen to the Eldar, right? Yes, he says that this world is not the ultimate destination for the men, but again, that's not the emphasis, just that they don't perish utterly forever. They perish, right? Um, but they don't perish forever. So now what, what's the primary difference with the mortality and the immortality? Uh, the elves both are immortal, in a sense, right? If anything, the elves are the more mortal of the two, or potentially the more mortal of the two, because we don't know. What the, the, what the destiny, what the, what, the, what the fate of the Eldar beyond the great end, that is, when, when Arda comes to an end, um, which is going to happen, right? we got that huge chord with which Lupitar cuts off the music, right? That's going to be the curtain falling on Arda. So what's going to happen to the Eldar after that? We don't know. It leaves the possibility open. Maybe nothing. Maybe the Eldar are done. Maybe they will be annihilated. Maybe they will perish with Arda and pass away and be gone. But the human, but the men will remain. Um, 
even though they only they only dwell a short time in the world alive, um, they do not perish utterly forever. Maybe the Eldar do perish utterly forever at the end of the world, at the end of Arda, at the end of the great at, at the great end. Right? Again, it doesn't say that that's definitely what happens, but it's a possibility. It's it's out there. Right? Um, now, um, so again, his emphasis here when he talks about death is not the men are being called outside the circles of the world. Right? We don't get that. Um, instead, what we see are two things. One, a limitation of the time span that men have on Earth. Why? Well, especially in the context of what we just heard, right? This seems to be a kind of a uh, uh, <laughs> like a fuse, right? Um, it, uh, that is not a fuse in the sense of like a you know the. A, the fuse of a bomb or something. I'm thinking of a, a fuse like a circuit breaker, right? Um, to keep it from overloading. If men have the power to change the music, right, um, they get a solo, right? They get to improvise in the music. But there comes a time when the conductor cuts them off, right? And it's time for their solo to end. They are not permitted, because they have this power, they're not permitted to carry on improvising forever. Right. Each one has only a brief solo. It's a solo, right? And they can do their thing with it, but it doesn't last all that long, right? Um, it seems to be a limitation. It seems to be a check to their power. That this power, this virtue, that uh, that uh, that Iluvatar has given them. Um, elves live in the world for its entire time, right? For the entire duration of Arda, um, they don't have the same power of change over the world over the music, over the history of things that humans do. They don't have that same virtue. So they don't need that check, right? They don't need that circuit breaker that is death uh, to keep them from screwing things up. Um, so that seems to be one of the primary emphases, the, 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 the consequence. And this is something which it seems to me is not even on the radar screen when we're talking about death as the gift of the Luvatar later on, right? Um, uh, the, the idea that it is a check, a curb on the power of men. Um, that's, that's an interesting thing. That's a different thing, I think, here. Um, the other thing, the other important thing that I think we, we need to, to, to recognize here, which is fascinating, um, numbers. The elves have a set number. They minish not nor grow their numbers, right? There is... Iluvatar created a certain number of elves, and that number is invariable, and they keep recycling, right? Um, this idea of them being reborn in their children always strikes me as kind of weird, um, you know, weird in the sense that, like, you know, you, <laughs> you get pregnant, and you have a baby, right? And you hold up the baby, and you're like, Grandpa, right? I mean, it's just, it's just odd. I can't handle it. Um, I just can't. I've never been able to handle this. Um, because, I mean, presumably this means they have their memories. It's not just like, in my former life, I was your grandpa. It's like, they're the same being, right? They presumably remember. This is just, it's just the mechanism by which they return to, to, to the world, right? Um, so again, like, with all of their memories intact and, and everything else, I just, I mean, 
So like seriously, like you have to potty train grandpa. I just I don't know. I guess I don't. whenever I start thinking about it, my like mind threatens to explode. Um, I have to admit, for this reason, to, <laughs> at least selfishly, to being really glad that Tolkien changed that concept uh, later on. Um, Rebecca Smith says it sounds like the reappearance of the, uh, the, the, the seven dwarf fathers. Yeah, I, we, we clearly do see Tolkien returning to that kind of idea um, with, uh, with you know, Durin the Deathless um, later on. That at least isn't quite this weird, right? Because again, it's not everybody, so it's like a more special thing. And there's something a, a little bit e easier to handle there to me anyway, when it happens like after multiple generations and everybody else who knew the old Durin is dead, is, is safely dead, right? So again, you don't have that. It's the bizarre dynamics of having somebody who, you know, like you used to know because you've been alive for a really long time too. Somebody that you used to know really well now like coming out as a baby, especially your baby, like that's, um, that, you know, Durin never had this problem. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, let's um, yeah, let's move on. Though I don't quite want to move on yet. Um, so humans have this this additional power. Their time on Earth is restricted, but their numbers are unlimited. Well, I mean, unlimited like only a certain number will be born before the great end, right? It's it's not like the number is actually infinity. Um, but it's not set. There isn't a there isn't a set. Um, there isn't a predetermined number of humans that just keep cycling through, right? Um, so you get them being restricted, but they are also much more numerous. And as a consequence, the impact of humanity as a whole upon the world and world history as a whole is much, much greater, right? Um, you know, each one individually is restricted. There's only so much they can do, only so much they can accomplish uh, in, that, uh, in that narrow space of their life. Um, <laughs> this, you remember the passage in the Silmarillion when Hurin and Huor are making their argument to Turgon about why they should be allowed to go free from Gondolin, right? And they're like, look, man, like the Eldar, you guys can hang out for thousands of years waiting for your opportunity, but the clock's ticking for us, right? If we want to do anything, if we want to accomplish anything in this world, we got to get moving, right? So please, please, please let us go. Um, and uh, Targon's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And he lets them go. Um, that passage is really, to me, it's, like, I, this is, this, I should apologize in advance for doing this because this is sloppy, right? I'm taking Book of Lost Tales thinking and I'm just applying it to a randomly different passage in the published Silmarillion, which is totally irresponsible. Um, but I still can't help but think of it. Uh, and I'm sort of imagining, you know, the Book of Lost Tales Turgon saying, to, you know, what would he say to who <laughs> or he might say, yeah, a bloody good thing too that you guys are, you guys only have a few number of years to accomplish things. Um, yeah, yeah, but anyway, um, yeah. James also asked, thinking of the uh, James Pace is thinking about the same the reincarnation through their children thing, um, thinking about uh, the problem from the other way around. Um, you know, thinking of Elven family planning. 
we'd like to have a kid, but nobody's died for a while. <laughs> we'd really like to start our own family, but we're going to have to off somebody first, and then he's going to be born as our kid. Again, like, it's just, there's no end to the weird. I can't handle it. Um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah, I agree with you. Sarah King has a, a, a makes a wonderful point here. Um, the business about the lifespan of men um, reminds her of the passage in the Bible where God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. His days shall be three score and ten. I agree, Sarah. Sarah, I was also thinking of Genesis chapter th uh, 3, the end of Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, when God closes off um, access to the tree of life, right? Um, since they have chosen sin, he's going he's gonna to put immortality out of their reach, right? Because they're not going to make good choices. And if they carry on making good, you know, we have uh, the cutting off from the tree of life provides a kind of quarantine, right? A quarantine in time. There's only so much damage you can do. There's only so far. If you, uh, you know, make choices to become more and more corrupted, it's going to end eventually, right? There's only so far you can go. Um, but, uh, um, so yeah, so Sarah, I was thinking of both of those things too, and that seems to me relevant. And Sarah, I would even go a little bit further from that. Um, and uh, we're actually getting towards this uh, in a couple minutes. I think that there are a bunch of ways in which the Book of Lost Tales is closer to Christianity, closer to the Bible than the Silmarillion is. Um, I don't think it's just you, Sarah, that is reminded of that bit in the Bible. Um, that con this concept of the correlation between the gift of power to men and their dwelling only a short time in the world alive, I, I, I think that that is an uncoincidental connection. Um, we're going to come back to this in just a second. Um, but let's... Uh, Let's pause for a second. Um, let's uh, look at the poem. Time for some poetry. I want to look at the uh, Habanan poem that he wrote, which Christopher Tolkien glosses as sort of explicitly, um, as, as bringing in, connecting Christian ideas with the you know, his, uh, his, his invented mythology here, and the concept of Habanan, which is this, the place where the souls are turfed out to uh, by Fui. Um, it, it's, it is, that's the link that links this poem to his mythology, this poem which, again, like most of these poems, was written significantly before this. I'm not going to say quite as much about this poem as I could otherwise, but I'm in a hurry now because we're running out of time. In Habanan, beneath the skies where all roads end however long, there is a sound of faint guitars and distant echoes of a song, for there men gather into rings round their red fires while one voice sings, and all about is night. Okay. Um, the hint that we get that this is not just a song about people hanging out around the campfire one night singing, that there's something, there's some more uh, 
there's some bigger issue involved here. Um, the first hint that we get of that, apart from Habanan and any connection it might have, is where all roads end, right? This place, however long the roads are, all roads end here in this place. Um, that already in the first two lines starts to give this a kind of afterlife-ish feeling, right? That we're talking about the ultimate destination of human souls. Um, so it's not explicitly stated there, but the implication to me seems to be uh, we're thinking in an afterlife kind of direction. What do we see? We, we, we get music and the echoes of music. Um, while one voice sings, is it one of the men in the rings who sings, or are they gathering into rings and listening to one singing? Not quite sure, actually. And all about his night. What does that mean? Is this a bad? Is, it, is that bad? If we're thinking after life, his thoughts and all about his night, that doesn't sound good, right? Does it? What's going on here? Um, well, we get more explanation in stanza two. Not night is ours, unhappy folk, where nigh the earth in hazy bars, a mist about the springing of the stars, their trails a thin and wandering smoke, obscuring with its veil half seen, the great abysmal still serene. Not night is ours, right? No, no, no. So again, this is not just a normal night, right? This is not, this is not, this is not just a camp out, right? Um, this is a night in some other sense. And it also seems to me to kind of allay the um, the sort of ominous fears that the last line of stanza one evokes in all about his night. No, 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 don't worry, not night is ours, right? It's not what you're thinking, whether you're thinking that it's a normal earth night or whether you're thinking that it might be something really horrible, um, you know, the eternal night or something like that. Um, no, it's not night is ours. What is it then? Okay, if it's not our night, if it's not an earthly night, um, what do we get? Well, he describes, okay, um, it's not a night as ours. Okay, so first it's going to characterize our nights, earthly nights, right? What, the, what is the night of us unhappy folk like? And by the way, notice the implied contrast there. Um, if we are the unhappy folk who have these other kinds of nights, the kinds of nights enjoyed by those other guys in the first stanza, they're presumably not unhappy, right? So that already... Has, now, has already provided us some more context, right? Again, and all about his night implication, it's a good thing in some sense. In what sense? That's what we need to sort out. Um, how, what are our nights like? Our nights are like the, there, there's, there's this haze, there's this mist, a mist about the springing of the stars, their trails are thin and wandering smoke, obscuring with its veil half seen, the great abysmal still serene. So the problem with our night is that our night is like a veil. It's like a thin and wandering smoke that obscures the great abysmal still serene. Um, our night isn't empty. Our night is shadowy and clouded because it is, there's a veil between us and serene, capital S, right? Um, so it's, um, what does that mean, that our nights are Dark. I'm not sure physically what it means, um, but the reason nights are dark and scary to us, the reason, again, that that line and all about is night sounds really ominous is because we're used to one particular kind of night. And our nights are all about that barrier, that mist, that confusion, that obscuring of 
the great abysmal still serene. I love that line. Um, I love that line, though I'm not sure I would want to diagram it grammatically. Um, is serene the noun? I think it is. And great abysmal still is a grouping of three adjectives describing serene, but not in the way in which adjectives are normally grouped. Um, remember the story that Tolkien tells in On Fairy Stories about how when he was a kid he wanted to write a story about the, the green great dragon and his mom said you can't do that, you have to say the great green dragon and he, he didn't understand why you couldn't reverse the adjectives in that way, right? The great abysmal still serene. There's something kind of great green dragon about that line, isn't there? The way those adjectives go together? I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, that is the, the very oddity, the very way in which the structure of those words don't seem to me, anyway, I might be missing something obvious, the way that they don't seem to fit the way that we normally use words seems entirely appropriate, right? Because what he's trying to describe is that thing which lies beyond our perceptions. Because here on Earth, we unhappy folk are a, that, that thing that he's describing is obscured from us, right? We don't perceive it. Tell me more. What is it like, that great abysmal still serene? A globe of dark glass faceted with light, wherein the splendid winds have husky, have dusky flight, untrodden spaces of an odorous plain that watches for the moon that long has lain and caught the meteor's fiery rain, such there is night. Okay, so here's what night is like back in stanza one, in Habanan beneath the skies. You know, for those presumably happy people who are not unhappy folk like us. Here's what it's like if you take away that obscuring veil. What do you see? Okay, a globe of dark glass faceted with light. That kind of sounds like our night sky. Um, wherein the splendid winds have dusky flight. Untrodden spaces of an odorous plain. Odorous? Splendid? Aren't those weird words? Seems a little weird to me. Doesn't that seem weird to you? Um, it seems to be a good thing, the odorous plain, right? But like, that's not normally how we use the word odorous. And a splendid wind, really? Um, winds aren't very splendorous, right? That's what splendid means, right? It's the adjectival form of splendor. How is a wind, a wind splendid? Why is a plane odorous? Um, there are a lot of images here, which again seem to be grasping beyond our normal experience, which seem to be pushing us beyond our normal associations. I personally sort of feel that this third stanza is, is the least successful of the four in this poem, um, but that seems to me what it's trying to sort of grasp at. Um, the moon. What about the moon? The moon that long has lain and caught the meteor's fiery rain. Doesn't that seem to be a very tantalizing untold story? Wait, so what's going on with the moon, right? Um, the plane watches for the moon. 
um, and we're told that the moon has been busy catching the fiery rain of meteors. In what, in what sense? Is it protecting the Earth? Is it gathering something? Um, is it, you know, gathering fiery rain in like a big vat like those which watered the trees or something? I don't know. Um, but we're never told, right? Again, we're just being glimpses, give, being given glimpses of things we don't understand. There on a sudden did my heart perceive that they who sang about the eve, who answered the bright shining stars with gleaming music of their strange guitars, these were his wandering happy sons, encamped upon those airy leas, where God's unsullied garment runs in glory down his mighty knees. Now we're explicitly told that they are happy, right? Unlike us unhappy folk. Um, they are happy. Um, his, so we get this, his heart suddenly perceiving. Again, so that, that seemed to bear out my argument that the earlier stanzas were kind of, a, especially the third one, is kind of a groping towards something that he doesn't even really directly perceive or certainly understand. And then suddenly he gets it, the whole picture kind of clicks in, right? Those, those singing guys, right? The, the, the sound of faint guitars and the distant echoes of a song, those, 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 those guys... Um, they're singing about the Eve, the evening, I presume, not the character Eve from Genesis. Um, they're singing about the evening, that is, the coming of night, right? Night is about to fall. That's a good thing, right? Again, back to stanza one and two. The falling of the night is a good thing, so they're welcoming the night in this new sense. Um, they are answering the bright shining stars with gleaming music. I love that. Again, the application of gleaming as an adjective to music. It's kind of like splendid winds. Um, their music gleams. So you have the shining stars being echoed in the music of the, uh, you know, being reflected in the music of the, of the, of the happy suns. Um, they were wandering, but happy suns encamped upon those airy leaves where God's unsullied garment runs in glory down his mighty knees. We get this glimpse of that great abysmal, still serene, this, uh, globe of dark glass faceted with light, which now when we suddenly, when our hearts can perceive it here, is just one part of the unsullied garment of God running down his knees in glory. We're seeing, you know, what, what this is, is we seem to be sitting at the foot of, of the throne of God. Um, oh, sorry. Um, so that's kind of a fascinating poem, I think, especially in conjunction with Habanan, as we get. Um, uh, okay. Um, oh, uh, DNA was asking, is A-E-R-Y equal A-E-R-Y -E -E here? Yeah, I, I think so, DNA. I might be missing uh, a subtlety there, but I, but I think so. I, I, I think that's... Uh, I believe so. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, now, so, okay. We get this, get this afterlife-ish thing here. Again, back to the stanza at the beginning. So this moment, this, this happy anticipation of the coming night, um, you know, this uh, sitting at the feet of God with his unsullied gar garment running in glory down his mighty knees, um, you know, the reflection, the gleaming music that they're singing uh, and playing, reflecting the bright shining stars. Um, all of these things are associated with Habanan. Um, 
Christopher Tolkien gives us right after this poem, his interpretation here. This poem and this entry in the word list, that is Habanan, offer a rare and very suggestive glimpse of the mythic conception in its earliest phase. For here, ideas that are drawn from Christian theology are explicitly present. It is disconcerting to perceive that they are still present in this tale. For in the tale there is an account of the fates of dead men after judgment in the Black Hall of Thuy Miena. Some, and these are the many, are ferried by the death ship to Habanan, Eruman, where they wander in the dusk and wait in patience till the great end. Some are seized by Melko and tormented in Angamandi, the hells of iron, and some few go to dwell with the gods in Valinor. Taken with the poem and the evidence of the early dictionaries, can this be other than a reflection of purgatory, hell, and heaven? Um... This seems to me right. I kind of have to agree with Christopher Tolkien. That is quite what it sounds like. Um, now, let me pause here for a second. Um, I need to make sure that we are on the same page uh, as far as purgatory is concerned. A lot of modern people don't understand purgatory very well. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so let me explain to make sure we understand that his his comment there and his connection. Um, Possibly that poem didn't make you think of purgatory, but it um, kind of should make you think of purgatory um, if we understand what purgatory is. So, okay, so there are these three destinations of the human soul, hell, purgatory, and heaven, except actually that's not correct. There are only two destinations of souls, heaven and hell. Purgatory is the third place, the third place where they go, but it's only temporary. 100% of the souls in purgatory are going to end up in heaven. Purgatory is, in the one sense, a place of waiting, but it's a place of correction. Um, that is, souls have to go to purgatory in order to get cleaned up, in order to go to heaven. Um, the, it, is, it is a place of reformation, a place where you are reformed, where you are improved, um, where you are still saved by grace, um, but, but there's work to be done on you before you are prepared to stand in the presence of God. That's the traditional doctrine of purgatory. Um, but again, the thing to remember, everybody in purgatory is saved. Purgatory is just a place of waiting for heaven. It's not, in its, it's not a permanent destination. This is why Christopher Tolkien is being reminded very strongly of purgatory, both by this glimpse of Habanon that we get in the poem, right, with these people who are happy, Right? They're happy because they're saved. They're happy because what's happening is constructive. They're still waiting. Right? Um, it's, it's evening yet. Right? The night, which again in this poem is a good thing, hasn't come yet. Um, but there they are at the feet of God. Um, and what they are doing there is a good thing, is a constructive thing. But it's not consummation yet. They're not yet united with God. This is purgatorial. Um, Arthur is talking about Tartarus, Hades, and the fields of Elysium. No, not, that's not it, Arthur. Um, purgatory is fundamentally different. And again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Um, yes, in the pagan underworld, you know, in the Greco-Roman underworld, there are different places. In you know, there's 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 Tartarus and there's Hades, but the those are sort of different zones, different levels of punishment. Um, you know, if you like different people who've done different things go to different places, that people are divvied up in different ways. But 
it's there's 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 a fundamental difference um, with purgatory, and that is again the whole the whole purpose of purgatory is 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 different. It's not a place of punishment at all. Punishment doesn't happen in purgatory. Correction happens in purgatory. And Jordan Sunderland, I agree with you absolutely. Um, he says, read Dante if you don't understand purgatory. Dante is the best place I know of also uh, to do that. You look at the punishment of the souls in hell, in inferno, uh, in Dante, and then you look at the punishment. Um, uh, you know, so this is, here's your assignment. Read Inferno, read Purgatorio by Dante. Um, compare the punishment of the damned in hell in Dante. C compare their sin and their punishment. Think about the relationship between their sin and punishment. And then look in Purgatory and look at the relationship between their sin and punishment, and you can see the fundamental difference. There's still, you've got souls in torment in both places. It's totally different. And it's not just a question of them being allocated in different places. Dante's Hell and Purgatory are very organized places too, but it's fundamentally different in that way. And Bill McCain, of course, is reminding us very rightly about Leaf by Nickel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to see Tolkien thinking about Purgatory? Uh, uh, look at Niggle in the Workhouse. Yeah, and that's just what Alyssa was saying too, just read Leaf by Niggle. Yeah, um, Leaf by Niggle is the, uh, the, clearly the most explicitly purgatorial thing uh, that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, if you want to understand that better, there it is. So anyway, back to Christopher Tolkien's point here, what do we do with this? How do we understand these, how do we understand the fact of these Christian echoes, um, because this is something that Tolkien doesn't do like this in the Silmarillion. We don't see sort of a manifestation of these Christian things within Tolkien's mythology. I was about to say why not, but that's not the right question. The right question, since we're talking about the Book of Lost Tales, is why do we get them here? Um, or rather, to put that question much more precisely, what conclusions can we draw about the Book of Lost Tales from the fact that we do see these Christian ideas coming up um, in ways in which they don't come up in the later mythology? Um, I would point to two things. First, um, remember the difference in time frame. We talked about this before. Um, that in the later conception of the mythology, the times in which these things are happening are very, very remote. And, you know, I talked about this when we talked about this Silmarillion, I talked about this when we did Unfinished Tales. Um, when people want to talk about the religion question, that is, religion in Middle-earth, um, I always keep coming back to this. Tolkien is very consistent. He was very tidy and orderly. Um, and he was setting out to write a story whose, whose historical frame is pre-Christian. And therefore, he is consistent with that. Okay, um, So he excludes anything that sounds like it's based upon Christian revelation. Because Christian revelation has not come to the world yet. Even by the Third Age of Middle-earth, we are still supposed to be in a, a distant prehistory time, okay? That isn't true. That is explicitly untrue of the Book of Lost Tales. In the Book of Lost Tales, we are in a world which is much closer to it. Now, in the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, remember Ariel has never heard of God, right? 
when when Rumil reveals that Iluvatar is not one of the gods, but is beyond them and above them, is outside of the world and made it and loves it, right? When in that sentence that we looked at before, Rumil uh, sort of reveals, he does like monotheism 101, right? And Ariel is like, wow, never heard of such a thing, right? Ariel is pre-Christian. Um, he is a he is a, 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 a Germanic pagan, but that concept is shifting within the time that he's writing the Lost Tales, as Christopher Tolkien begins to explain in his commentaries in the early chapters, and will explain much more fully at the end of Volume Two of the Book of Lost Tales, with the shift of the frame tale being told by Ariel to the frame tale being told by Alfwin of England, right? Um, that shift, again, a shift forward in relative time, that is in the relationship between the time frame of the tales themselves, um, of the, of the, you know, the history of the elves and the Valar, and of the end of our real world history. It's brought into the Christian era, right? Now we have a post-Christian, Anglo-Saxon English person being um, coming and finding Tol Arisea. Um, and this, the idea that the world of the Book of Lost Tales, that the world of the Legendarium is in contact with the Christian world, not the pre-Christian, prehistoric world, but with the Christian world, is borne out by the fact that we see in his early Elvish vocabularies lots of explicitly Christian terms being brought in. We, he, he gives us the elfish words, I'm forgetting the examples off the top of my head, for things like monastery, for instance, as I recall. Um, there, are, uh, there are a bunch of, of ex again, explicitly Christian religious words that we get the elfish terms for. Um, because again, in this early conception, there is contact between the Christian world, the, Christian histor the historical Christian world, and the elvish world, the world of the Valar here. So that's one reason that I, that, that's one conclusion that I would draw, that it is as a consequence of that, that we see, um, that we see some of these Christian ideas being more explicitly touched upon uh, in these stories. He doesn't have the same kind of firewall up that he has in his later writings. The second thing that I would point to, I think I'm gonna end with this, I haven't quite finished getting all the way caught up, but boy, have we made progress. Anyway, the second thing that I would bring up is that this is a reflection, or this is an instance, I guess, of the very different approach to myths and myth-making that we see Tolkien doing in this book. And uh, Neil, um, Neil Ottenstein emailed me about this um, and asked about this, and I, 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 Neil, I, you're, you're right on, and this is something I was wanting to talk about anyway. Neil was saying, do we get, you know, are we getting a whole lot more of the, you know, sort of myth as explanation of a phenomenon? You know, the, 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 you know, one very traditional idea of myth, right? What is a myth? A myth is a story that is that is devised to explain a phenomenon we don't understand, right? That's one traditional concept of what a myth is, right? So we, you know, lightning strikes. Uh, a tree and and you know the tree collapses and, and maybe falls on our house or something or kills one of our cows and we don't understand why that happens so we we, we make a story about Thor right uh, Thor and his hammer okay 
that's a myth in this sense, right? An explanatory myth. Um, now, normally, when we think of Tolkien in mythology, his later writings, especially writings like on fairy stories, have kind of trained us not to think in those terms about Tolkien in myth, right? That when Tolkien is talking about myth, um, and when we have, you know, like the concept of Tolkien writing mythology for England, um, that's not the kind of myth that we're thinking about. At least it's not the kind of myth that we're used to being thinking about. Um, but, and we touched on this before, we get a lot more of that. It absolutely is there in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, it seems, again, a sort of a tentative conclusion I've drawn here, I think that his later concepts about mythology and myth are not yet really fully formed. He is still operating on a much more traditional premise when it comes to myth and myth-making. What does it mean to make myth? It means to tell stories, many of which, if not necessarily all of which, but maybe closer to all, actually, have some of that impact. That is explaining how did the world come to be? Why do we see what we see in the world? Why do we have these extremes of cold and hot worlds? Melkor, right? Melko, sorry, right? In the music. Um, why do we, you know, wh wh where does sorrow come from? When uh, hopeless mourning just comes over you, well, that's from Fui, right? She wove that web and she sent it out, right? Along, presumably, with a supply of tears that she's been, that she's been brewing. Um, we see a lot more of that kind of explanation. And for that reason, I think we see, that's, that, I, that is one of the things that I conclude, that pattern, these two patterns, that is seeing more explicitly Christian stuff and seeing this tendency to do more myth as explanation throughout, I think that you know, those two things seem to me to go hand in hand as well, that ultimately the world that Tolkien is describing is the Christian world, right? He believes that heaven, hell, and purgatory exist. So he's going to tell a story of how heaven, hell, and purgatory work within. Like he's gonna, it's gonna be built into his mythology something which is going to look just like heaven, hell, and purgatory, um, because what we're getting is that kind of myth, that kind of explanation of how these things came to be, or sort of how these things work. Um, well, I wanted to move on to talking about bringing the Eldar to Valinor um, and the fateful, the enormous decision that the Valar make to bring the, you know, to invite the elves over to Valinor. But we're already way over time and I probably shouldn't impose on you to that extent, but really we are so much closer to caught up than we were before. Um, I'm, uh, we'll start with that and with the description of the Silmarils, and then we'll move on um, and uh, carry on forward uh, uh, in the story and get to Feanor um, next time. Yep, Yana says the sun's up over there. Uh, so if the sun is up, uh, 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 you know, in Europe, then I, it's time to stop. Clearly, it's time to stop. Um, so thanks, everybody. We'll, 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 we'll look at that. So review um, the coming of the elves to Valinor, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, and so keep up with the reading schedule 
for next week. Thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, good night to everyone, and I look forward to talking to you. I will actually be home in my normal broadcasting studio next week with faster internet, uh, so uh, I, I hope that uh, things will be a little bit more reliable. I'm glad to hear, based on the fact nobody said anything, I hope that uh, the broadcast came across okay tonight. I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, so uh, I'm really glad that the audio worked out all the way through today. So. We did it, and back to normal next week. So thanks, everybody. Good night now.